Moses prayed that he'd see your glory. And he couldn't see it because he was too human and you are too divine. But then you placed him in the cleft of the rock and you covered him with your hand and you enabled him to see your hind parts. We just want to see your glory, Lord. Thank you for Jesus who has made a way for us to see you as you are. Because as we have seen him, we have seen you, our Father. We bless you, Lord, and we pray your blessing on this time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Again, we would like to welcome you to Calvary Chapel. We, we don't usually have people stand up and you know acknowledge that they're visitors, but if you are a visitor, we're glad you're here. We just don't like to, I don't like it, you know, when I go to another church and somebody says, stand up as a visitor. Do I have to? You know, so I figure if I don't like it, maybe some of you don't either, so I'm just going to let you chill and relax. You know, it's been an interesting weekend because of the May 21st prophecy, 2011, by an unfortunate prophecy by Harold Camping of Family Radio Networks, and back in 2005, he somehow got it into his head that yesterday was going to be the day of the rapture of the church, and that 200 million people all over the world would go to heaven and meet Jesus, and that there would be a great earthquake and other cataclysmic things would take place. And then, of course, it didn't happen, and and uh, so now there are believers, unfortunately, sincere ones, as Pastor Bill pointed out, that are disillusioned. But, you know, the whole error could have been avoided by everyone had they just taken seriously the words of Jesus. So let me read three verses out of Matthew chapter 24 to you. Matthew 24 is part of what is called the Olivet Discourse. That is the discourse of Jesus to his disciples while he was on the Mount of Olives prior to his going to the cross. And he talked about his second coming. And he talked about the conditions that were going to be in the world preceding his second coming. Those conditions are very real today. And he said basically that his coming would be both predictable and unpredictable. It would be predictable because of the signs that would be in the world prior to it. The physical second coming of Jesus to the earth would be predictable because it couldn't take place until first there was the abomination of desolation in the city of Jerusalem, in the temple, but unpredictable because we don't know the day or the hour of it. So it's both known and unknown, it's both predictable and unpredictable, and it's both uh, imminent and very much known in terms of the timing of it. But in verse 36 of Matthew 24, Jesus said, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Down in verse 42, Same context. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Verse 44. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect him. I didn't say anything prior to Camping's prophecy on my blog site or on Facebook or any other place because I didn't know for sure if Jesus wouldn't come back yesterday. I mean, he can come back at any time, right? And I don't want to 
eliminate that possibility from my thinking. We're supposed to be ready for his return at any time. So, you know, in my heart of hearts, I was sort of hoping, yeah, it would be cool. I wasn't hoping that it would be cool so that he would be right, camping would be right. I was hoping that it would be cool, you know, just for obvious reasons. We want to see the Lord. So we have to be careful. We can't predict days. We can't predict hours. And, you know, it's very interesting. Back in 1988, a book came out by Edgar Wisenot, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture of the Church Could Be in the Year 1988. And the very first section of the book talked about why the words Jesus is going to come at such an hour as you think not don't really mean that Jesus will come at such an hour as you think not. And that's what every single one of these guys has to do. They have to somehow explain away the idea of imminency that Jesus could come at any time and not when we think and not in a day that we predict. They all have to explain that away somehow, and then they get into the midst of their foolish predictions. So anyway, my heart is heavy for the folks, as Pastor Bill mentioned, and I think that's a wise bit of counsel to pray for those that have been so disillusioned. But the advantage is, now here's a plus for every single one of us, the subject of the end of the world, the rapture of the church and the second coming, is everywhere. And people are thinking about it in our offices and in our neighborhoods and in our areas of work, on the construction sites, wherever we might be. What a great opportunity to give them the real scoop. Yes, Jesus is going to come. Like a friend of mine posted on Facebook this morning, uh, Jesus is still coming, so go to church. (laughs) And I loved it. But, uh, you know, so there is a great opportunity for evangelism during times like this. Okay? So that's about all I need to say about Harold Camping. Let's turn in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5 this morning. We can continue that theme in the wrap this, uh, after the service, so we'll talk about that as much as you would like. Ephesians, the fifth chapter, the title of the message this morning, Marital Submission. Aren't you excited? And the outline goes like this. Introduction, the meaning of submission. Submission of the wife to her own husband in verses 22 through 24 and in verse 33. Submission of the husband to his wife. And you husbands are saying, wait a minute, I didn't know that was in the Bible. We'll find out. And then summary of marital needs and responsibilities in verse 33. So that's where we're headed this morning in our text. Let's read the entire text as we dive in. Verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that I should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. 
For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Nature teaches us that monogamous marriage between one biological male and one biological female for life is the best plan to follow. Nature teaches us that. Sociology teaches us that. Culture teaches us that. Child-raising gurus intimate that and teach us that. I mean, it's everywhere. Yet the culture that we live in resists marriage like the plague. The culture that we live in wants freedom from any old-fashioned kinds of constraints like marital parameters and marital commandments and marital guidelines. Yet the greatest possible freedom comes from the truth of God because the truth of God flows from the nature of God. And whenever we're connected to the nature of God in the way we live, we are at our greatest level of freedom in this life. And that's what biblical marriage teaching does for us. It frees us. The role of the husband, the role of the wife, the way that they interconnect. So important. When God created man, he created man, mankind if you will, on the sixth day of the creative process. The first six days were made up of all kinds of levels of creation. And on the very sixth day, after all of the creeping animals and the cattle and all of those sorts of animals were created, then God created man in his own image. And it says in Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God made he him, male and female made he them. God made mankind male and female. God created mankind in his own image. And after the sixth day of creation was completed, God said of his creation, it is very good. He only said it is good after the first five days of creation. Creation day one. It's good. Creation day two, it's good. Three, it's good. Four, it's good. Five, it's good. Six, very good. Why? Because man, mankind was created on the sixth day. The pinnacle of God's creation. His greatest work of art. Creating human beings in his own image. Creating maleness and all that that means. Creating femaleness and all that that means all part of God's own nature. There are aspects of maleness within the nature of God. There are aspects of femaleness within the nature of God. And he created that within those human beings that he made. Separating them and then bringing them together in this wondrous thing called marriage. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and they too shall become one flesh. So you initially had Adam the biological male. Woman had not yet been made. And God puts him to sleep because he sees that it's not good that man should be alone. 
putting him to sleep, he takes out of his side the curved side and from the curved side makes the woman and then brings the woman to the man. The man sees the woman and says, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she's taken out of man. And it's for this cause that a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and they too should become flesh. Now Adam, who had been biologically and socially alone, now is one with this woman that God has created and has the opportunity now to be one with her physically, one with her emotionally, one with her intellectually, one with her spiritually. And the greatest marvel, sociologically, spiritually, and spiritually speaking, has just taken place when God brought the man to the woman and the woman to the man. Living it out is an entirely different matter, however. (laughs) David Hawking wrote a book entitled, Good Marriages Take Time, Bad Marriages Take More Time. (laughs) It's true because it's just hard. Marriage itself is a mystery. Paul says it here concerning marriage. This is a great mystery, but I'm speaking concerning Christ, Messiah, if you will, and his church. Jesus, the heavenly bridegroom, the church, the called out ones from the world, his bride. United together right now, we're betrothed to him. The marriage will be consummated at the marriage supper of the Lamb following the rapture of the church. And right now, that entire engagement or betrothal process is being lived out as he's helping us prepare for the big wedding day. It's a beautiful thing. We look at the church and its relationship with Christ and Christ's relationship to the church and it reminds us of this earthly model, husband and wife. Likewise, we look at the husband, we look at the wife, and it reminds us of the heavenly model, Christ and the church. And that's where the parallels are drawn here in our passage. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Wives are to submit themselves to their own husbands as unto the Lord. It's all about relationship. It's organic. It's submissive. It's mutually beneficial. It's loving. It's having to be empowered by the Spirit of God. That's the only way it can work. So what is submission? What's the meaning of it? I've included in the notes that are on your, in your bulletin a long commentary by Pastor David Guzik of Calvary Chapel of Santa Barbara. And I'll leave you that, to, to read that very carefully at a later time. But I do want to highlight a couple of points here that he makes. One thing that he says is he's talking about the word submission, and in point number three, he says the idea of this military word, and he's right there. The word hupotasso is the Greek word, and it is a military term. He said the idea of this military word is more easily applied when one rank is above another, but here Paul isn't using it in that way. It's easily applied when you tell a bunch of privates, submit to the generals, but it's a little more difficult to get a hold of the meaning when you say to a group of privates, submit to one another. 
Paul isn't emphasizing the idea of rank because he addresses all Christians. But there is something else important here. We should take this idea of being under rank out attitude of the military and apply it to our everyday dealing with one another. And then he points out what happens in military training and preparation, boot camp. Individuality is stripped away. Now the soldier or the airman is part of a company or a battalion. He's no longer an individual. The right to decide what you want to do with your life has been taken from you. Even though the army or the military are filled with individuals, it's never individualistic. That's the first thing that has to be broken when someone joins the military. You have to be broken of individualism. There has to be the idea of one for all and all for one. And this idea of holding on to myself and holding on to my own rights is anathema to any relationship. In practical action, verse or number six here under Pastor David's points, submitting to one another implies the following, all in line with the idea of being a team player. The Christian must not be thoughtless, but think of others. The Christian must not be individualistic, must not be self-assertive. The Christian must never be self-seeking. We must have a team attitude. We must be happy when someone else succeeds or does well. We must bear our own discomforts and trials with courage. And so, essential to the meaning of submission, whether it applies to the man or to the woman, is the idea of cooperation, teamwork, wanting the best for someone else, serving them, being a blessing to them. That's all part of it. And in our context here, as we pointed out last week, it all starts with this command in verse 18. And the command is, be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. And then it's followed, as we pointed out last week, by three successive participles. Be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing to yourselves with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Be filled with the Holy Spirit, giving thanks to God the Father for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Be filled with the Holy Spirit, submitting to one another in the fear of God. So each of these conditions or each of these arenas of submission illustrate what submission is. And it illustrates what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So to be filled with the Holy Spirit, I'm a worshiper. To be filled with the Holy Spirit, I'm thankful and not complainer and grumbling and griping all the time. To be filled with the Holy Spirit, I'm submissive to others. Now again, there is this marvel of marriage. God's greatest creation was mankind and marriage was the single most mysterious and wonderful unity that he created outside of himself. But within God's own nature, you've got this incredible unity. He's always had within himself companionship and oneness and love and respect and honor and cooperation. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. No division there. No desire of the Spirit to become preeminent. 
or the son to become preeminent, or even the father to become preeminent, although he is. But the complete desire within the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit to eternally and infinitely complement each other, working within their own nature, and therefore expressing the oneness that is theirs. And that same thing that exists within the very nature of God is what God has patterned to exist within marriage. It's his plan. And that's why submission is what it is and means what it means. It means those same things that are within the nature of God himself. It means companionship. It means oneness. It means love. It means respect. It means honor. And it means cooperation. So we talk about the submission of the wife to her own husband in verse 22. Submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord. It's a spiritual act because it's as unto the Lord. But what does it mean? What's the definition of submission? We've already hinted at it. But as far as in the context of marriage is concerned, we have to go back to Genesis. You have the man, the biological man, Adam, by himself, alone. The woman had not yet been created What did God say in Genesis 2.18? It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. There you have the primary and first mention of the meaning of submission. Here is the man, Adam, who is incomplete and needs help. So God makes the woman, brings her to the man in order to complete him, in order to provide companionship to him, in order to help him. That's submission. Does it include the idea of obedience? It can. But that's not the emphasis. Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him master, we learn in 1 Peter chapter 3. But that's not the emphasis of Sarah and Abraham's relationship. There were a lot of other dynamics going on in that relationship other than just pure obedience. But why is this true? Why is this necessary? Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Fit into him. I like to use this illustration. Here's the man. Like this. You have to look at my hand now. Here's the man. Naturally and typically closed off. Man needs to open up. Okay, now when the man opens up, here's the wife, who when the man is closed off, tries to find places to fit, but can't find places to fit. But when the man opens up and declares his need and reflects his need, then the wife finds places to fit And she finds that it's a good fit. And so does he. That's submission. Submission is fitting. And why is this necessary? What's the basis of it? Look at verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is head of the church, and he's the savior of the body. The husband is head of the wife. What does a head do? Well, (laughs) The head administrates. The head is the source. The head is the place where the brain is located. It's the 
source of the whole entire central nervous system. All the autonomic and voluntary nervous system activities come from the brain. It all originates from that. And so source would be a meaning of headship. Strength, leader, as Pastor Johnny referred last week, point man. That's what it means. The man's in that role. And so therefore, a woman finds her greatest place within the marriage when she is able to fit in to her husband in the way God wants her to, he operating as her biblical head. Now notice what the text tells us in verse 23. This is sort of a caveat to the whole thing. The husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. So there's the pattern. And he, Christ, is the savior of the body. So a man is functioning in biblical headship when he is acting in headship as Christ acts in headship toward his church. But if the husband is acting inconsistently or at odds with the way Jesus is head over his church, that husband is not practicing biblical headship. If a man is brutal to his wife, if a man is demanding upon his wife, if a man is abusive toward his wife, the man is completely going opposite of the meaning of biblical headship. And he cannot call what he is doing in his home biblical, manly, godly in any way, shape, or form. Am I yelling? Sorry about that. Yeah, the ladies all like that. All the women are... All the women are... The husband's headship is modeled after Christ's headship over the church. It's not brutal. It's not demanding. It's not inconsiderate. It's not selfish. It's not self-serving. Everything that Jesus does for his bride is for the good of his church. And everything that a husband as head of his wife should do is for the good of his bride as well. Now verse 24 tells us that as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. In everything. Those are the two favorite words in this whole passage for most men. Husbands, were you listening to verse 24? Were you paying attention? Why? It's not addressed to you. You're opening your wife's mail. That's a federal offense. <laughs> Seriously. This is, this is a, this is, it's almost comical, but it hurts. It's, this is such a tendency we have. The man reads the marriage passage and he focuses on what his wife needs to do. The woman reads the marriage passage and she focuses on what the husband needs to do. But we're actually opening each other's mail. It's really not my deal. If a husband has to ever, or thinks he has to, he never has to, but if he ever has to think that he's got to tell his wife to submit, he's lost it. It's a good way to get an 
iron skillet across your skull. (laughs) I'm not suggesting any particular response. Headship. Now, you don't have to look very far to find biblical examples of submissive women and the power that is in that. Sarah is a prime example. 1 Peter 3 points out that she's a prime example. Peter says that in former times, holy women trusted God. And they adorned themselves with this attitude of a meek and quiet spirit. And they were submissive to their own husbands. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. And so Sarah is held up in the New Testament as the model of the Old Testament submissive wife. Yet, we find that the Lord told Abraham to listen to his wife and pay attention to what she had to say. You see, they had two sons, and the oldest son was Ishmael, and by the time he was an adolescent, Their youngest son, Isaac, had been born and had just been weaned. And Ishmael, the oldest son, was mocking Isaac, the youngest son. Isaac was the natural biological child of both Abraham and Sarah together. Ishmael was the child of Abraham with his handmaiden, Hagar. When Sarah saw her own son, Isaac being mocked by her stepson, Ishmael, she bristled inside. She became defensive, she became angry, and she reacted. And she said to Abraham, and we're not told the tone of voice, but she said to Abraham, cast out this bondwoman, Hagar, and her son. For the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. Abraham was naturally displeased because Ishmael too was his son. But God said to Abraham, don't let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of your bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice for an Isaac your seed should be called. And what that helps us to understand is that within marriage, even though the husband is head of the wife and the wife is to submit to her own husband in everything, it, it, it shows that there is dialogue. It shows that there is communication. It shows that the husband needs to pay attention to what the wife has to say as the wife needs to pay attention to what the husband has to say. In a healthy marriage, every decision should be made with mutuality. Well, you talk about it. It's not a matter of one's person getting their own way, you talk about it, you pray about it, you wait on it, you look for the right timing, the opportunity, and then you move forward, hopefully, together with unanimity. That's what happens in a healthy relationship, and that's the biblical pattern. Now, there was another occasion when... Abraham should not have listened to his wife, Sarah. And that was when Sarah made the suggestion earlier. Since Sarah had no child, and 
at, up to that point could not get pregnant. She said to Abraham, her husband, go into my maid. Perhaps I'll obtain children by her. That was a situation in which Abraham should not have listened to his wife. The result of that decision to go into Hagar and then have the son Ishmael, well, it's, let's just put it this way, it's created huge problems in the Middle East. So there's that relationship that goes uh, together. Now, let me come at this one more way. This role of the wife submitting to her husband, submitting to her husband and everything, fitting into him, cooperation, respect, and so on. Verse 33 says the wife should she see that she respects her husband. Why are these things listed here? Why does God say this is important for you ladies in relationship to your husbands? Well, in answering the question, let's look at who God is. He's the one that made us, right? He knows our wiring. He understands what we're made out of. He knows what men are. He knows who men are. He knows what men are like. And he knows that the greatest and key need of every husband is to have a cooperative wife, a wife that respects him. It's a greater need for a man than kissing and hugging and holding and even the sexual relationship. It's a greater need than even that. We have it in our, the core of our being, we men, that there'll be at least one person on the planet that thinks that when we open up our shirt, there's a blue suit with a big red S on the chest <laughs> who believes in us. And that's what a man needs. As one author put it, it's the man's air. It's what helps him breathe. It's the man's water. It's what helps him drink. It satisfies his thirst. That's why the Lord says to his daughters, daughters, treat your men like this, would you? Treat your husbands like this. It's the result of the spirit-filled life. Now, we're going to move on from that. Ladies, now you can pay attention. Just kidding. The husband also submits to his wife. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Does that not sound like submission to you? In fact, if you look at the grammar of it, the way the whole passage reads, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit being a worshiper. Be filled with the Spirit being thankful. Be filled with the Spirit being submissive. Be filled with the Spirit submissive wives, you to your husbands. Be filled with the Spirit submissive husbands to your wives. It's the same flow, and it continues on into chapter 6. With fathers to children, children to parents, and masters to slaves, and slaves to masters. 
It's all coming from the same source, the spirit-filled life, which leads to a life of mutual submission in every one of our relationships. So yes, the husband submits to the wife. I love this, because it completely disarms the classical, radical feminist argument. Real manhood does this. And this is what it really looks like to be a godly man in the marriage, is to love my wife as Christ loved the church. That is an act of supreme submission. It was submissive for him to come as a human being. It was submissive for him to be willing to go to the cross. It was submissive for him to be nailed to the cross. It was submissive for him to stay on the cross. It was submissive for him to rise from the dead and raise himself from the dead. All of that was the submission of Christ as well as the way he served his bride. So notice, husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved, loved the church. Past tense. Why is it in the past tense? Does it mean he doesn't love us anymore? Used to, but not anymore. No, it's used in the past tense because it refers to something that happened in history, the cross. What was the greatest event that showed and demonstrated the love of Christ for his church? The cross. And that's what the husbands are called to do, is love their wives as Christ loved the church. And in a very real way, the husband goes to the cross. And this points out the key need of the wife. And there's really only one basic command for the husband throughout this text. Love your wife. The key need of the wife is the husband's love. That she knows it, that she feels it, that she's reminded of it, that she is his object of desire and love. That's what a woman craves. I mean, the world even knows this. Listen to some of the love songs. The men sing about broken hearts and the women sing about the longing for romance and somebody to treat them specially and to love them uniquely, singularly. That's what it's about. The key need of the wife, it's her air. The key need of the wife, it's her water. It's what keeps her breathing. It's what satisfies her thirst. And so the Lord says to the men, men, love your wives. And the passage goes on and tell, tells us a little bit more about this love of Christ that is our model, men. He gave himself for the church, verse 26, that he might sanctify his church, or that is set her apart, that he might cleanse his church through the washing of the water of the word so that she might be clean. In, in order that, his great goal for the church would be realized, which is found in verse 27, that Jesus could present to himself a glorious church. That's what he wants, a glorious church. He wants to exhibit his bride in splendor and in glory. And what does this church look like? 
that Jesus is presenting. It doesn't have any spot in it. No stains, no blemishes. Think acne here. It has no spots, has no stains, has no blemishes, has no wrinkles. Think wrinkles. <laughs> Not Jesus' bride. No wrinkles. No signs of being haggard or worn down or exhausted or aged or any of those things. Not Jesus with his church. But that her, his church, verse 27, would be holy, set apart to him, and without blemish, the word could be translated, maybe should be translated, without blame. So Jesus' work and ministry toward his church is to present a glorious church that with no stains, no wrinkles, completely set apart to him and with no blame. We're talking about the most beautiful woman in the world. His church. The most beautiful bride in the world. His church. That's how Jesus is toward his church. Does his church deserve it? No. Because we're all still subject to weakness in this flesh. But we're the objects of his love. He loves us that much. And it takes the example of Christ and then directs it straight at the husbands. Verse 28, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Love that. Now, all I have to do as a husband to make this practical is to think about what I do for my own body. I'm very careful with my own body. I feed it. I burp it. <laughs> I let it get enough rest. Especially feed it. Like that especially. Take care of it. I brush its teeth. I floss its teeth so the dentist won't get mad at me. I do all these things. I'm taking care of myself. I'm focused on my body. I mean, it's frustrating sometimes. You have stuff to do and you've got to take care of your body. But I do. We all do. Well, let's put some wheels on this. I'm to love my wife as I love my own body. And I love what Ron Wiseman used to do with this passage years ago as he was teaching in his seminars. Husbands, do you want a glass of water or you're thirsty? Then on your way to getting one, ask your wife if you can get her one too. Love your wife as you love your own body. You want to take a nap? Ask your wife if you can help her take a nap. You're going to go raid the fridge? Ask your wife if she wants anything to eat. You want to go out and have a good time and just relax? Ask your wife what you can do to help her relax and go out and have a good time. I mean, it's just, it becomes very practical on that level. You get the point. He who loves his wife loves himself. That's bottom line. If I love my wife, 
it comes back to me. I love myself. And so the great book title, Husbands, Do Yourselves a Favor, Love Your Wives. Great title. It speaks volumes. Focus on her and the woman will return the blessing. It's natural within her to do so. She wants to be pleasing. She wants to be supportive. She wants to be submissive. She wants to be loving. The wife is special to this man. He lets her know it. And she knows that she's special to this man. Now notice in verse 28 again, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. The word ought means that this is something that the husband owes his wife. Now the husband doesn't owe his wife a two-story home in an expensive neighborhood. He doesn't owe his wife a lavish lifestyle. He doesn't owe his wife these things, but he does owe her love and the security that she feels because of his love. That's what he does owe her. He owes his wife to be responsible, to provide for the family. That gives her security. He owes his wife to be agreeable within the home, be pleasant, to be nice. He owes that to her, even though he may not be able to provide a six-figure income and what comes with it. He owes his wife to pay attention to her and to not ignore her in the pursuit of his own things that he wants to do. That's what he owes his wife. It's a, it's a word of, of obligation, uh, obligation. And it's one that we husbands need to take on ourselves and just say, okay, that's, that's a word for me. I owe this to my wife. And then verse 29 is a you-can-do-this-men kind of a verse. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. That's true. I know how to not hate my flesh. I usually don't put on boxing gloves and beat myself up every morning. I don't intentionally jump off cliffs. I don't try to hurt myself because I don't hate my own flesh. But I nourish it. I cherish it. So I know how to do this. We can do this. We can do this kind of love for our wives because we do it for ourselves all the time. We can. What's important to us is what we will do. And this is, this is our mission, men. Ladies, you don't have to listen to this. This is our mission, men. To help our wives feel this way, that we, they know that this is how we are to them. This is our mission. This passage here, verses 25 through 33, combined with 1 Peter 3, 7, are the life verses of every married male. To be studied, to be memorized, and to apply. This is part of our prayer life every morning when we wake up. Lord, help me to be this man. 
This is what I journal about. This is what we journal about when we're evaluating how well are we doing with this thing called the Christian life. We think about our marriages. How's it going? How are we doing? We make it priority because it's important to Jesus. And it's all part of the spirit-filled, submissive life. Right? We don't deprive ourselves. We shouldn't deprive our wives. It's pretty much that simple in verse 29. Verse 30, for we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones, which means we're special to the Lord Jesus. We're a member of his bride. We're part of his body. So should our wives be to us. Part of us, included in our thoughts, in our dreams, in our joys, in our sorrows, in our recreation, in what makes us excited about life, about living for the Lord. Let them in. Let the wives in. And then the mystery, a quote from Genesis 2. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two should become one flesh. The principle of leaving and cleaving. One flesh being formed. The concept of the inner circle. God has created a brand new circle of relationship made up of husband and wife. Here's the circle. Husband and wife are in that circle. Then when the children are born, they're in that circle. So it's husband, wife, and little ones. Husband and wife raise the little ones so that one day they leave the circle and form their own circles. They're always in my circle, but when they form their circles, I'm not in their circles. They had to leave me in order to cleave to their wife. To become one flesh. Husband, wife, children in this inner circle. Protected by the grace of God. A great mystery. I speak concerning Christ and the church. This is where it all happens. So we get to experience this thing called marital unity and oneness. Potentially in so many areas. Sexually. The joys of sexual love and marriage. Awesome. Emotionally, the joys of sharing our hearts, our dreams, our wishes, things that we're happy about, things that we're sad about. The joy of having someone like that in our lives that wants to listen to us and that wants us to listen to them. Intellectually, the joy of exchanging ideas, agreeing together, debating together, jousting together intellectually at times. So fun. Recreationally, finding things that we love to do together. And just having a great time with our best friend. Outstanding. Spiritually, serving the Lord together, going to church together, finding ways to be a blessing to others in Jesus' name together. Exciting. And then when Jesus returns, being caught up in the rapture to meet him in the air together. Oneness, 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 it's everywhere. 
A lot of marriages have the experience of oneness maybe on one of those three areas, spirit, soul, and body. Maybe they have oneness in the area of the soul, but no spiritual fellowship at all, or perhaps physical companionship. Other marriages will have two. Others will have all three. The goal is all three. That's the thing that God wants to do. And what a blessing when it happens. It's like clicking on all eight cylinders. And maybe you're, you're thinking, that's not our marriage. And I know a lot of marriages, that's not our marriage, their marriage either. But that doesn't mean we can't pursue it. That doesn't mean we shouldn't pursue it. To do and to be the right person, to do the right thing and be the right person is the most important thing. Right? And if I'll do my thing as unto the Lord for my bride, the chances of her doing her thing in the right way toward me have just increased exponentially. But if both are holding out for their rights, I'm not budging. I'm not submitting to him until he loves me like Christ loved the church. I'm not going to love her like Christ loved the church until she submits to me. The people that are holding out, they're just in this stuck place of spiritual and emotional pride. They'll never get out of it and their marriage may end. And it didn't have to. It didn't have to. Instead, somebody can decide, I'm giving up my rights. I'm going to be like Jesus here. He gave up his. Let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider his equality with God something that he should hold on to. But he emptied himself, and he took upon himself the form of human flesh, and he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. And he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. That's what Jesus did. So I can give up my rights in his name, and I can decide to live radically if I want. If I want to trust the Holy Spirit to help me, because I'll need that help. I can trust him to help me live radically, giving up my rights. And that might break what author... Egridge says, is the crazy cycle. The crazy cycle. Husband says, I can't get no respect. He's the Rodney Dangerfield of his home. And the wife says, I can't get no love. And they're in the crazy cycle. They're bumping at each other. They're grinding each other constantly. Somebody's got to break the cycle. And I love what Egret says in his book. You know who gets to break the cycle? If you're in that crazy cycle, you know who gets to break it? The one who recognizes it first. You're the one that breaks it. That's your responsibility. Now, there's so much to talk about here. I've got to stop. Verse 33 is the summary of it, all of it. Let each one of you in particular... So love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. You see, it's all summed up. Everything that he said in these verses summed up. Husband to love his wife as he loves himself. Wife 
to respect her husband. It's all summed up right there. The great and primary needs of the man and of the woman. The man longs to be respected. The woman longs to be loved. It's the way God made us. It's the way God made us. So, you know what? I'm just like you guys. Sherry and I are just like you and your marriages. We don't have it together. We're not perfect. We have a good marriage. It's a growing marriage. We're thankful for each other. We're wanting to do the right thing. But we have our weaknesses like you do. That doesn't stop us from moving ahead. Right? I decided, you know, how am I going to teach this passage this morning? And the Lord whispered into my ear, by my grace. (laughs) Okay, there we go. (laughs) Need that grace. But how am I going to live this life? Same answer, by my grace. Right? Lord, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the outline that you've given us here of the way the spirit-filled, submissive life is lived within our homes. And we know that the things that we've talked about here this morning, this inside-the-club talk, because we're all part of the club, is craziness to the world around us, but look at the world around us. Where's any evidence that they're doing it right? We thank you so much for your truth and for your love and for your grace. Strengthen marriages, Lord. Breathe fresh life into marriages that are hearing this message right now, either online, who will hear it later by listening or watching online or listening to a CD. Strengthen all of our marriages in this building, Lord, we pray. We need your grace. Those that are unmarried because they've never been or who are unmarried because there has been a divorce, we pray that you would strengthen and encourage each every heart. Lord, we all see ourselves and are to see ourselves as you see us through Christ. Thank you for the way that you take away all of our spots, all of our wrinkles. You make us holy and you remove all of our blame. We thank you for that. So just wash over this fellowship and all those that are hearing and watching and listening. Wash over us all that we might be strengthened into this spirit-filled life of submission. Thank you, Lord. What a blast it is to do it your way. What a blessing it is to do it your way. Help us to do that. We need you, Lord. And as we're praying, maybe you're here this morning and you've never made Jesus your Lord. You've never submitted to him as your Savior. You can do that this morning. The good news is he died for you. The next piece of good news is he died for you that he might live his life in you. He wants to come into you and empower you in every way, make you a new person. And he's inviting himself into your heart. He's knocking on the door of your heart, inviting himself to come in, inviting himself to be your savior, inviting himself 
himself to be your master. Will you let him this morning? Will you believe that Jesus died for your sins? Will you believe that he rose from the dead? Will you trust him in these things? Will you confess your sins to him? Will you ask him to change you into the image of God? You can make that decision right now. And if you desire to make that decision right now for the first time, would you just do me a favor and indicate your desire to make Jesus Lord and Savior by raising your hand. Just raise your hand right where you're seated this morning. Raise it up high so I can see it and hold it up. We'll have a word of prayer with you. Anybody this morning? Anyone? Okay, let's stand together. On Tuesday, we talked at our men's fellowship about how our thoughts connect with our beliefs. And our beliefs connect with our actions, and our actions create habits, and our habits produce destinies. So it all starts with what we think, what we believe, what's in our heart, and what's in our head. So if we have God's truth in our heart and in our head, then what happens is our our behaviors begin to be changed. We start acting the way we think, and we start acting the way our hearts are. Because as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Right? Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring forth the issues of life, Proverbs 4.23 tells us. So the heart and the mind, it's all there. So what I believe... I have to accept God's view of marriage, first of all, and understand it, what it is. What's my role? What's my responsibility? And then from there, allow the Lord to create actions that are consistent with what I feel and with what I believe. You know, there's so many resources today on this subject. I would recommend Egerich's book, Love and Respect. Great book. Great book, Love and Respect talks about the crazy cycle, some of the things I talked about this morning. The 40-day love dare challenge is excellent for men. You can actually get an app for your iPhone. <laughs> Seriously. And after you finish a day's love challenge, you just press the little check box and a check mark appears in there and you flip over to the next day at school. My wife didn't know I had that on my iPhone. <laughs> She's always kidding me about how I could check things off. It's perfect for me. But there's so many resources. I would encourage you that are married, do something about what you've heard this morning. If you don't have a, a date night as a couple, get a date night. Start a date night. Every week where there's a special time where or a date day, it doesn't matter. We're just you and your wife are doing something together. You're spending time. Remember, I remember a pastor saying, what's the purpose of God for marriage? He was asking some people that he was ministering to, tell me, what is the purpose of God for marriage? 
They looked at him with this quizzical look. They had no idea. What's the purpose of God for marriage? That's a great question. They threw out a bunch of answers. But, you know, back to Genesis 2.18, you know what God said the purpose of God, the essential purpose of God for marriage is? It is not good that man should be alone. I'll make him a helper that is comparable for him. What did God fix when he created marriage? He fixed aloneness. That's what he fixed. The problem was aloneness. He fixed it with marriage. So hang out together. Have a date time. At least one time a week. Do something about what's been heard. And you'll see that your actions can become habitual. And once the actions become habits, you're creating the framework for what your life is going to look like the rest of your lives. You're going to create a a destiny. Thoughts, beliefs, produce actions, produce habits, produce a destiny. And it you know, when you, when you talk about the pain of what people feel in life, where do the pains come from? I've been there. They come from the pain of failed marriages, the pain of relationships going south. That's why it's important to focus on this, right? Be proactive. Be preemptive in this. That's what God is calling us to do. Right? Okay. I'm now officially done, about an hour after I started.